Thank you for tuning in to this message from Kingdom Ears International, headquarters located in Flagstaff, Arizona. Okay, so going to Torah portion 7, which is Genesis 8, 15 through 9, 17. So if you guys remember, we are picking up, not, not that we're picking up on it now, but we are going back to the Torah portion after Jacob read. Um, so we kind of ended our time of Torah portions. Basically, um, let me go back. Remember, it was everything, the word but was super important, but God remembered. And we really released on what remembered means. And that remember doesn't mean he forgot, but that remembering is a call to loyalty to remember or to activate again that word remember in english is so hard the the best word is remember but it's not in the way that we understand it in america or in standard english where it's like well i forgot so i had to remember but it's more of a remembrance to something that you're loyal to and so we kind of um went through the torah portion um we went through the days, if you guys remember, um, kind of that whole flood. And then that is when uh, dad had released on the crow versus, the, or the raven versus the dove. And making sure that we're watching what are we feeding on. And he talked about, you know, um, eating on dead things versus eating on things that are alive. And so, anyways, just to kind of calibrate us, that's where we left off. And then moving into that next Torah portion. We start in verse 15 and we go all the way through chapter nine, about halfway through. So um, if, if you look at my text, basically what we see in this Torah portion is we beginning, we begin to see the concept of sacrifice. Now, the reason why that's important is obvious in the sense that this is a foreshadow of what a sacrifice will do, right? So everything in the Torah points to his son. Up until this point, we haven't seen um, a sacrifice to this degree. It's obviously something that is common because we saw that offerings were brought forth with Cain and Abel. But here we see a, a, um, a, a sacrifice. And so that's a huge part of this chapter. The other part of this chapter is, what do we do with that little line, verse 21, chapter 8, verse 21, that says, when Adonai smelled the soothing aroma, Adonai said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground on account of man even though the inclination of the heart of humankind is evil from youth. Okay, what do we do with that? So when I say we're at a um, uh, we're at a dilemma, um, th- there's this dilemma here where it's basically saying that we are evil by nature, and there's really nothing we can do about it except God remembering His covenant. And so um, we kind of come to a crossroads at this point, and, and I'll get into it. But the reason why is because man was evil before the flood. And here we see after the flood, we're still evil. 
which is a huge thing I'm going to get into. But what do we do with that? If evil is our natural inclination, then how are we supposed to get through this life? Well, we see that the answer, basically when you're at a crossroads, there's nothing that we can do, then the answer comes in a sacrifice. And that's huge because we know that in our hearts, we're evil. And who's the one that came to get rid of the heart of stone? And I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll just jump into this now, but this is so powerful because this chapter is basically outlining this concept of there's literally nothing that you can do. You are evil by nature and even a flood to the degree that he released over the earth doesn't change mankind. So what are we supposed to do? Well, we see that he remembers his covenant or wants to establish covenant because of a sacrifice. So that's a huge part of this chapter. The other huge part of this chapter, if you guys noticed, is we get into some nitty gritty Torah stuff here. It is the beginning of some things. Um, one, we're going to talk about seasons. Two, we begin to see some food instructions here. And it's the first time that we see some food instructions. And I'm going to kind of release a little bit on some of those food instructions because there's, there's a couple different ways to look at part of, part of this. But we begin to see um, seasons. We begin to see, um, and, and this is important because up until the flood, here's a little mystery. Prior to the flood, there weren't seasons. Now, if you remember in Genesis, it talks about the English word, I believe, is seasons. But remember, we already dissected that. The word wasn't seasons. It's not talking about fall and winter, spring and summer. It's talking about the Moedim, the, the appointed seasons, the appointed feasts of Yahweh. That means up until the flood, there really wasn't, there wasn't seasons. There, really, there wasn't any rain either. So we begin to, to see some change after all of this. And so we see seasons. We see some instructions on food, and then we also see capital punishment come forth, um, and then we get the sign, the sign of the covenant with the, with, the, uh, with the rainbow. And so there's a lot going on in this chapter. So that's kind of the overview. So when I talk about the nitty gritty, <laughs> there's a couple things I want to point out here. Um, Oh gosh. Well, there's one little thing that doesn't really have to do. Well, anyways, let me, let me just, you guys are going to have to bear with me, but we see in the beginning that ultimately what this chapter is doing is it is establishing what is necessary to rebuild. Now, this is absolutely powerful for the Torah portions to read us because here we are in the very beginning stages of rebuilding. And I know we've been saying that for a while, but in context to, to Yahweh's time frame, I mean, it's, it's but a blink of an eye, right? That could be a hundred years for us. So in the end, we are rebuilding something. And so you, you, you kind of get some instructions in this chapter on what does it take to step out onto new ground and begin to rebuild. This is the foundation of his society. This is the beginning of what we see he's trying to establish outside of Eden, but Eden, right? I mean, they can't go back to Eden because the story is not done yet, but they are having to establish a clean society. 
So we begin to see almost again, and, and we talked about this with the timing, uh, the last time we were together where I said it, there's a theory that when the flood ended and the, the dove, the dove landed and it was on dry ground that it was at the beginning, which excuse me, would be Yom Teruah. So again, that, and the, and the theory is, is that's when earth was created, that we're at, we're at the beginning. And so you, you see once again, basically a reenactment of creation starting again. And so here you have the beginning stages of Noah being instructed on how to build a, a, a pure society, even though <laughs> the inclination of us is evil. He's, he's giving these instructions. And this is why this is so powerful because this just flies in the face of Christianity that says, because of him, we don't have to do what he says, because even with the sacrifice in this chapter, and even with starting all over, you still have the inclination of man to be evil. And he has to give instructions on how to live. <laughs> So why would the sacrifice in this chapter, why would he smell the sweet aroma and be like, you guys can totally go back to being evil. I think you guys should totally build a society on your own instructions because this is a free ride. You're good to go, right? He doesn't do that because he smells the sweet aroma. He basically says, because of that, even though you're evil, I will remember my covenant with you and I'm going to teach you how to live on earth, right? There, it's, 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 it's a covenant where it's both come together. The sacrifice gives him a sweet smelling aroma that allows him to want covenant or not want covenant, but to remain loyal to his side of the covenant, which up to this point, you guys, is completely one-sided. All we know is man's evil. And Yahweh comes in and basically, you know, uh, demolishes earth because of that evilness and, and, and protects his seed in order to fulfill his promise. They're still evil. Now I'm going to get into that, but they're still evil. And yet he says, but you need to follow my instructions. So even though our natural tendency is to be evil, we have to incline ourselves towards instruction, not just towards a sacrifice. It's both, which is why in Revelations it says, those that enter the kingdom will know my name and follow my instructions. Because there's something that's powerful that happens. Man is evil at heart. But we know that when the Messiah comes, he has the ability to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He actually changes your nature. Not so that you can keep doing whatever you want to do and what you did before him, but so that you not only have the price paid for, for your sins, it's so that you are now inclined to not be evil, which is to walk righteous. So he didn't just come so you can be saved from hell. He came to save you to walk a lifestyle on earth, which is communion with him. Okay, the reason why I'm getting into that is because the inclination of evil has nothing to do with environment. Literally in this chapter, blame gets taken out of your vocabulary. 
you cannot, you cannot blame anything or anyone or any environment on whether or not you're in right standing or not. Basically, in other words, it was not a bad social environment that brought about the wickedness in man's heart. It was characteristic of man because we see that they were evil before the flood. And here we have this crazy flood that you would think would fix it. And it doesn't because he says that sweet aroma, it says in verse 21, let me read it again. A, uh, smelled a soothing aroma. Sorry, I kept saying sweet. Adonai said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, even though the inclination of the heart of humankind is evil from youth, nor will I ever again smite all living creatures as I have done. So he doesn't say the flood changed your heart. He just had to get rid of all of the idolatry and all of the evilness in order to start over. And, and he had to remain faithful to his promise, which is why he took this family and said, I'm going to protect my seed. Now he's telling that seed, you're still evil at heart. Like you're still, it was not, it was not a bad environment prior to the flood that caused people to be evil. It's in humans nature. So what that what that is showing me is that that's why we need his instructions i guess is what i'm getting at because even if a flood can't fix the heart then ultimately we have to follow his instructions as well as in this time on this earth we also get the advantage point the the vantage point of being able to have the messiah who did pay for the penalty, but also empowers us to be able to live in a society where we follow his instructions. <laughs> and this chapter gives us the basis of being able to acknowledge Yeshua in a two-way position, not just through grace, not just that he saved me, not just that I'm good to go now, but that he empowered me that even though the environment or everything around me may not be good, I will be empowered to walk by his instructions because this is showing that he didn't just change humankind. And now to this day, I don't believe that humankind has changed. We are inclined to, we are inclined to walk evil except acknowledging who he is. And in acknowledging who he is was not a free ride, but it was so that we would no longer walk evil. Well, we're going to begin to find out what walking evil looks like. A lot of people think, well, I'm a good person and I don't flip people off and I don't do drugs and I'm not. No, evil is not eating correctly. Evil is not understanding the, the foundation to society. Evil is not understanding the seasons. Evil is not understanding um, the, the, uh, the, the instructions that he gives. That's what causes the evilness to, to manifest. And so I, I don't know, for me, that was just super powerful to recognize that that one little sentence where the flood did not just change humankind, but it did change the scenery to start over. But how many times do we get a flood in our lives? The scenery completely changes and you still can't get breakthrough. You, you, can, you can bubble wrap a situation as many times as you want, 
and you can completely come in and change the environment. I've, I've watched people say, um, well, if I just move, if I could just get to a different environment, if I could just sell this house, get another house, if I could just change states, if I can just change my family, if I can just change everything that's around me, then I'll be fine. No, because even a flood couldn't do it. So I'm pretty sure all of your outward working is not going to get you anywhere because even a flood, which was a complete outward working, didn't change the inclination of man's heart. But what it did do was it did, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't bubble wrap. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying you shouldn't move. And I'm not saying that you, that's not what I'm saying. But if you're doing it to fix the situation, that's not going to, that's not going to do anything. The reason why I say it's okay to bubble wrap certain situations is because he did to some extent bubble wrap the situation because there was so much idolatry and so much evil that he had to get rid of it in order for his seed to prevail. So there is a time I know for me with my kids, I will bubble wrap a situation to avoid any possible triggers to say it is time to start over. But guess what? Once I do the bubble wrapping, my instructions on my children is you have to respond to that bubble wrap. You have to partner and you need to abide by my instructions or this bubble wrap isn't going to do anything for you. It will only last so far because at heart you are evil. So we've got to walk righteous to be able to not have those evil inclinations um, come forward. And that's the, that's the power of choice. I'm not saying we're all evil. I think we have the ability to choose righteousness of course that's free will but there's again we go back to Cain and Abel when we talked about the two choices there's always the two choices and so do you to, to acknowledge and humbly acknowledge that there is evil inclination in my heart it actually humbles me it doesn't shame me to recognize I've got to make a choice it's not just a free-for-all like well Yeshua came into my life and so now I'm naturally good and so I'll just do the right things no I have to be an active participant in this covenant and I've got to follow his instructions so that I can push down that evil inclination and allow righteousness to come forth. And I know that this can kind of be kind of a doom and gloom thing, but I mean, it is all over the scriptures. Um, uh, I got to look at my time to see where I'm at. Uh, Psalms, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my, uh, did my mother conceive me? Psalms 51, right off the bat, you were, you were conceived in sin. Uh, the wicked go astray from the womb. They err from their birth, speaking lies. From birth, this happens. I mean, Ecclesiastes, Jeremiah, it, the heart is deceitful above all things and, and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? Um, <laughs> Ecclesiastes, the heart of men is full of evil and madness is in their heart while they live. I mean, it's all over the place. Enter not into judgment with your servant for no man living is righteous before you. I mean, what this is doing is saying, I have absolutely no hope whatsoever. The scriptures are very clear at the condition of mankind. So we cannot blame, well, earth was corrupt or my family sucked or, um, you know, my parents were horrible or, I mean, whatever blame we could put. No, it doesn't matter. Maybe all those things are true. Maybe your parents didn't maybe it was horrible. Maybe, maybe you lived in a horrible environment. Maybe bad things did happen, but <laughs> right. Like it's not, we are not subject to a bad environment. You are not outside of scripture to be like, no, I actually have, um, 
an evil inclination uh, because I was raised horribly. No, you have an evil inclination because you were literally born that way. Like that's your journey. Your journey is to over overcome the evilness and to walk into righteousness. It doesn't matter the circumstances. And this chapter is the biggest blast in the face because even a flood was not able to change man's inclination. And so anyways, I hope that I have honed in on that point, but I really wanted to talk about this concept of not being able to blame anyone else, but ourselves and our own journey and our own walk of being able to walk righteous because, um, because of what this chapter is showing us now, it could seem doom and gloom because, well, then what hope do we have? Well, how powerful is that? Here we are at a standstill. I am inherently evil. The scripture tells me mankind is horrible. And yet, even in that horribleness, Yahweh says, I will remain faithful. If you read through the whole chapter, if you think about it, he doesn't even give you the rainbow for you. <laughs> he gives the rainbow for himself to remember to be loyal to a covenant with these people that are inclined to evil. So, right, we're at this horrible standstill. Thanks, mom. Thanks for pointing out this entire chapter on how horrible I am and there's no hope. Here's the thing. The only hope is in him. You cannot do it. Like I said, I'm not saying that you're not supposed to be an active participant. You are to walk by his instructions. You're his child. You have to let him father you. That's not what I'm talking about. But you in and of yourself cannot produce a covenant if you're evil and he's the one who's providing everything up until this point. At this point, he's, a, he's wanting to establish covenant, and it's one-sided. Everything about this chapter is his faithfulness. And because of his faithfulness, he gives a few instructions to his children, which is what is so powerful. Because what this chapter is saying is my instructions are for your good. Nothing about this chapter does he say, well, because you're evil, I'm going to punish you. So here's my punishment don't eat dead carcasses, right? It, it's, it's like we've got this notion that his instructions are to, oh, I wrote it down here. Let me find it in my note. Um, oh gosh, I had it like written down in my notes where it's like his instructions are to trip us up. I think I, I think I wrote trip us up that his instructions are to try to um, prove us wrong and trip. We don't need, we don't need, we don't need anything to prove us wrong. We are wrong. Like it's not to trip us up. It is literally to set us up to be able to walk righteous because we're evil at birth, not because you ate ham. You are evil at birth. Not because you didn't follow his instructions. You just are evil. So then when he tells you don't do this, he's teaching you how to live a righteous life. Not to be like, well, I wonder if they're going to get this one. Well, that's a punishment. You just can't have that because I'm mad at you. There's nothing about this chapter that it sets up his instructions that way. His instructions are you suck, <laughs> but I'm going to remember my covenant with you. And so in order to rebuild on this brand new society to live righteously so that we don't fall into idolatry, I need you too. And then he gives some instructions, right? It's not, it's not from a place of push down or punishment. It's, it's for good. It's to train us in the world he gave us. 
think about it again, going back to the first chapter, he is God. And if he created it, he has the right to tell you how to live in it. Think about that. Who are we to be like, no, actually that plant is for my good. No, actually that animal is really good. Like who, why would you make that decision? You didn't create earth. He created this environment. He, he created earth and he's just telling them how to live in it. <laughs> I would think that if there was a manufacturer, not a manufacturer, but a, a builder who built a home, what am I going to do? I'm going to go to the builder and say, how do I run the water? How do I work the water heater? How do I, why would I come into the house and be like, you know what? I think what I'm going to do is use the closet for a bathtub like it, it, you you wouldn't you wouldn't come in and, and and change those things you would follow the instructions of the of, of who built where you're living okay so let me go back to what i was getting at um because i really want to hone in on how good he is right i mean the whole part of what i feel is that i really want to pull out his character which is why i'm honing in on our evilness because even in that he still says this is what I'm going to do. And up until this point, he is the only one that is faithful. I think it's in uh, second Timothy where it says, even if you are, um, even if you are faithless, yeah. Second Timothy, even if you are faithless, I will remain faith faithful for he cannot deny himself. So he's saying, regardless of what, where, regardless of you, I am going to uphold my end of this. And so um, we see this when he starts talking about the seasons right after he says, I will never wipe you out again. He, it says, while all the days of the land remain, which the land still remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. We have to understand some context here. Up until this point, prior to the flood, idolatry had swept over the earth, which is why there was so much evil. And the reason why is because things got backwards. Earth became God, not Yahweh. And so, and you'll still see that today where we hold animals or plants or earth higher than we do his creation. What he's doing is he's establishing order again within his society of his priorities. So what we're seeing here is prior to the flood, there really, there wasn't seasons. And so we are seeing Yahweh's faithfulness in the seasons. Basically what he's saying is regardless of your condition, the sun will always rise. That is huge. And I think the reason why is because we take it for granted that we live on this earth and we just think, well, this is our home and we become entitled and we forget that there is a creator. Just like we forget that he might have some instructions for us on how to live on this earth. We forget that he's the only reason why the sun comes up. That's what I mean by evil inclination. There is nothing in you that you can do is, let me ask you guys this. Is there anything you guys can do? better or like it is there anything you can do that will cause the sun to rise tomorrow no we are completely and utterly dependent on his faithfulness period you you cannot you cannot do anything for the seasons to change he is in charge of that and so what what we're seeing here is prior to this idolatry had said 
that the um you know gods you know became you know whether it be a rain dance or maybe not a rain dance because there wasn't rain but you know what i mean you began to see gods come forth on the different seasons you could pray to earth you you know idolatry was basically saying that's going to change my environment versus the dependency on yahweh is god and he controls earth versus the earth being its own thing and it's being controlled by itself so it's just a powerful thing to just take note here because it's sometimes you can read over that and be like well yeah obviously we always have cold and heat and seasons but we have to recognize that prior to the flood we didn't see this yet we, we we're told to honor his appointed feasts but we're not necessarily seeing his faithfulness in the seasons to be able to express his goodness that regardless of regardless and, and the reason why i'm saying all this is because when we see a rainbow it's not just to remember his covenant towards us but to remember there's seasons there's water in the sky there's light there's a sun I mean, it's all, it's all scientific. I mean, a rainbow isn't just a random rainbow. I mean, it's, it's light reflection. I mean, that is showing, I am, he is saying, I am faithful. Regardless of you, I am faithful. And that, that is um, uh, su such a big, you know, big thing for us to, to grab a hold of. Um, okay. Um, I mean, basically what you're seeing is a reversal on paganism. Um, I had said idolatry, but paganism essentially is what heightens seasons. Um, pagan attempts to like, like coerce gods to bring spring versus the God of the Bible pro promises continuously all the days of the earth, seed time and harvest time, cold and heat, summer, wind. wind. So like it's, does that make sense? It's like, paganism was utilizing that and this was bringing back into order that he is God. Okay. So moving into, let me see if there's one more thing I wanted to get at not. Oh, let me just read this. Cause I th thought that this was really powerful. Um, so we have man's heart is continually wicked, but God still invites him into a faithful relationship. And how do we do that? How can you have a faithful relationship if we're wicked? The answer is the sweet aroma. And this is powerful because we need to understand why is there this sweet, um, soothing aroma, which comes from sacrifice. And it's a foreshadow of what's to come, which I know I've already said that. I just wanted to read this. For not only does the infinite payment of Messiah's death balance the scales of divine justice for those who believe, it also secures the means by which the redeemed child of God is enabled to live righteously. Here is the answer to mankind's wayward heart. Here is the way back to Eden. Here is the fulfillment of the promise. It is the sacrifice that Noah offers and the notice that it is a sweet aroma to God that we hear the prophetic me message culminating in, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And this is kind of what I'm talking about with the whole two-way way of thinking. The sweet aroma not only appeases Yahweh to remain faithful, but it's in the sacrifice itself that empowers one, two, it secures the means by which 
if you're redeemed, you are enabled to live righteously. And so you begin to see the beginning workings of what we've been talking about, that it's not just about grace, but a two-way street of how to be in faithful communion. The heart of all of this is to show how horrible we are so that we understand that Yahweh is a good dad. He's a good father. He's not a punisher. He's a redeemer. And his nature was to constantly want to dwell with his people who were inclined to evil, not because they were made evil, but we have to go back to Genesis 2, Genesis 3, right? With the fall of man, that is where it evil inclination came in. And that does get passed down generation to generation. We've seen that with the other Torah portions. You can't just rid yourself of that. Because it does get passed down. And yet, it's not not passed down just because Yeshua stepped on the scene. It never, we have not heard yet until Yeshua fulfills his destiny that we all of a sudden just aren't born in sin. That's why we need the Messiah in the first place. But for what? To save you from what? To save you from the evil inclination. So now you have a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, which is awesome. You are now born a new creation. But for what? To live and to walk righteously, which is the means to be able to be in holy communion. <laughs> I, um, okay. I want to go into chapter nine. Um, and I'm not... I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of some of this. And the reason why is because I actually want to pass that on to dad, which he doesn't know yet. But if you guys remember when he was breaking down the early church, uh, not the early church, but remember when dad was breaking down the greatest lie ever told part of what he taught on was the Noah, the Noah, oh my gosh, the Noah laws. This is what he was talking about. Um, and, and so I really want him to kind of take that on because we're beginning to see the beginning workings of the Noahide laws. However, the reason why I'm saying this is because the Noahide laws in quotes did not get established until way after Yeshua was born were they deemed Noahide laws. So I want to just preface that, that this is the beginning of what we see theologically as the Noahide laws but I want to make sure that I preface that the Noahide laws, even though they were written by Moshe in this chapter, did not become the Noahide laws until rabbinical um, priests got involved to establish Noahide laws. And so it gets a little wonky. So when you start reading in the early church, when they are talking about some of those beginning laws, we will read it theologically as if they're talking about the Noahide laws, but we have to remember that those weren't really established. So I don't mean to confuse you and I don't, you know, it's kind of another whole thing, but I did want to just preface the reason why I'm not getting into some of the details on this is because that's a theological thing. And I want to, st I want to stay close to the overarching um, structure of what Yahweh is after. Um, so Getting into chapter nine, we begin to see some instructions. And of course, I love that Yahweh is introducing us to instructions. So I'm definitely going to go into detail here. I just wanted to make sure that I release that. If you're studying this, you will see these beginning laws kind of lumped into a thing called the Noahide laws. So, but I'm going to, I'm just going to kind of move through, uh, through this. Um, 
and just to be clear, the formation of these were not until 250 years after Yeshua. So Acts 15, when Padrino was breaking down Acts 15 about those beginning laws, at that time when they were breaking that down, there was no such thing as Noahide laws. So I just I just want to I just want to put that out there. If that means anything to anyone, you have that information. Um, okay, so let's get into these uh, instructions. Um, uh, let me let me read this. Um, okay, these laws, these instructions are divinely ordained and necessary. So regardless of what you think Yeshua came for, if that's even up still for debate, I'm not saying that it is, but I'm just going to keep honing it in because this is such a new rebuilding process for us that I am going to keep honing in on this. If we believe that Yeshua decided to come on the scene so that we can, so that he can abolish the foundation of society, we've literally lost our minds. Yeshua did not come to free us from the beginning rebuilding process of a society. Not one time did he come in and say, you know what? I'm just actually going to redo all this. <laughs> These instructions are foundational. They're the beginning of rebuilding. It doesn't have anything to do. What my point is, it doesn't have anything to do with the sacrifice. It doesn't have anything to do with salvation. It doesn't have anything to do with the sweet aroma. This is like a separate thing. It's one thing to give him a sweet aroma and have a sacrifice because that gets rid of the punishment. He could have annihilated them right then and there. But he didn't because of the sweet aroma. I mean, he didn't because he could have before the flood. But you, you guys get what I'm saying, right? He, the, the sacrifice gets rid of the punishment. But when you're not punished, then what? If there's no punishment, you can't just stop at no punishment and just say, well, now it's a free ride. He didn't come to take away your punishment so that he so that you can undermine the beginning workings of a society that functions in righteousness. He, 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 there's nowhere in the scripture that says anything that Yeshua said, you know what, you guys can keep just building your societies however you want. I, I just took away your punishment. Yes, the sweet aroma takes away the punishment. The sacrifice gets rid of the punishment, but the punishment, having no punishment means you get to live free. Well, a lot of uh, our history is, is freedom is to be bound to sin. Freedom is actually to be bound to righteousness. Either way, you're bound. People think that, and, and I've been, I've literally been made fun of this. Well, I mean, I've been told by family members, you are bound to something he freed you from. And I'm like, no, I'm bound to righteousness. I don't want to be bound to evil. Either way, I'm bound. He didn't come to free me to not be bound to righteousness, but to just be bound to myself. Anyways, I hope, I hope, I hope that that's making sense. So, um, <clears throat> oh gosh. All right. Um, so sorry. So these are divinely ordained and we can see that they're, like I said, these laws have nothing to do with, well, you were really, really bad people. So I'm going to punish you now. It was just, well, because you're evil by nature because of generations previous to you, I'm going to give you the instructions on how to, how to live righteously. Um, it, it doesn't, and it doesn't have anything to do with the sacrifice either. It just has to do with how to live in society. It's just instructions. It's not about salvation. It's not about heaven and hell. It's not about good or evil. It's not about any of that. It's about living righteously. It's just about how to live in the house. So these are divinely ordained and necessary for the rebuilding of human society. So listen to this. The sanctity of human life becomes a cornerstone 
right here. And we've already seen this with Cain and Abel. We begin to see that he is trying to say something about human life. Human society falls to the level of the animal kingdom. Uh, sorry, let me just read this. Where the sanctity of life is neglected, human society falls to the level of the animal kingdom. Um, so we begin to see the beginnings of capital punishment because he's trying to give some instructions on what happens when you fall into that animal kingdom realm and you don't um, honor life. Because what it's ultimately saying is the fear and terror of you will be on every wild animal. He's giving a hierarchy here. He's saying you were made in my image. Animals were not. You are higher than them. And so he's putting things in proper order. Okay. So that's all that means, or not that that's all that that means, but that's all that I'm going to get into uh, with the beginning part is that he's just trying to put you in a position to know that you are the ruler of this earth. You are the one that is over the animals and not the other way around. Um, and it's because you're made in his image. Um, because the ability of man to rule over the animals is one aspect, the sanctity of life and the priority of human life over that animal are foundational prin principles to the society. So the, so let me, some of the foundational principles, these aren't even instructions, these are just principles, is that the ability for man to rule over animals, the sanctity of life, and the priority of human life over the animal are the foundational principles for society. So those are the foundational principles. Now we get to see that God gives us his commandments for our good. Um, to the extent that any society recognizes and enacts these laws, to the extent the society is given the ability to maintain. I mean, that's super powerful. God's laws are never, this is what I was saying earlier, are never a trap to snare us. They're good and they are to aid people in living in ways that benefit all, not just benefit you, but benefit all. So you've got these foundational principles that establish a society. And then he goes and gives you instructions on how to aid the good of all to be able to live with these foundational principles. So um, let me stop there for a second, and then I will move into some of those instructions. Okay, so I'm going to get into some of these instructions. And again, I'm going to leave some things out there. Um let me think of how I want to do this. Um, yeah. So let's just, yeah, let me just do this. Okay. So basically we begin to see the principles, which is the priority of human life, all that kind of stuff, right? In the chapter, it says fear and terror of you will be on every wild animal. That's basically saying that you are in charge of the animals. Okay. Now we get into Every, call, every crawling thing that has life will be food for you, as are the green plants. I have now given you everything. Okay. Couple of things here. And this might be a little bit hard for me to speak to because I feel like there's still a lot I've got to dive into and I am not an expert on this. So, but I do want to point it out. There's a couple of different thoughts behind this. Um, well, first of all, let me, let me, let me do this. It, meat from animals are now used as food in the same way as the green plants. So 
that does not necessarily mean that they weren't eating meat prior to the flood. It just means that now you can kill an animal. So I'm not sure, or what we're not sure of, is prior to the flood, what were the instructions? But what we do know now is that they can eat meat. But like I said, that doesn't mean that they weren't eating meat. It just means that up until this point, um, uh, that only now the killing of animals for food was divinely permitted. So he's basically saying you now can kill animals to eat. So again, it doesn't mean that they didn't eat meat. We just don't know how we ate them because we see that he's giving them instructions about blood, which kind of references that before they did eat meat, but they ate it not kosher in the sense that there it was blood, that it was dead carcasses. It, it, they didn't kill them. It, it was, they, they were eating meat, but they weren't eating it healthy. So now he's, he's allowing the permission to kill animals to eat. Again, a couple different ways to look at that. But what we do know is that you can eat plants and you can eat meat. Prior to the flood, we're not quite sure exactly where things stood. Um, but now it is divinely permitted to kill an animal. Okay. Now, what, what's, let, let me just, let me say this. What's interesting is, is um, prior to the third verse. So I want us to go back. Let me see if I can find it to read it. Every animal came out of the ark. Then they built an altar. And he took every clean domestic animal. Okay. Ding, 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 ding. The reason why I am coming to the conclusion that they probably ate meat before, but did not um, kill it, or they were eating dead carcasses, is because there was some level of establishing what was clean and what was not clean prior to this, even though it is not written. Because how would Noah know to sacrifice a clean animal? So the fact that there's a distinction coming out of the ark, that there is a clean, uh, clean animal, shows me that he had to have had some type of information on his instructions that we're going to find out about later. So Leviticus gives us the food laws. We don't hear about them until Leviticus, but that does not mean that the, the people in Genesis did not have awareness of these instructions, just like we're realizing with Cain and Abel, they knew what an offering was. Okay, now, now we hear, now we see that no one knows what a sacrifice is. So there's some things that kind of just pop forward that has to have some context pr prior. So I'm, I'm hoping that this makes sense. Um, but that to me is a huge thing. Every clean domestic animal and every clean flying creature and he offered burnt, burnt offerings on the altar so um uh so so basically we see that there is the difference between clean and unclean so fast forward let's go to this um verse in chapter three every crawling thing is food for you some theory says that up until this point, there is no clean or unclean animals, that all food is permittable. That is one theory. 
Another theory is, is that it was common knowledge on what was clean and what wasn't clean. And so when it says every animal, it's talking about every clean animal because that was common knowledge. And we take it for granted that we don't understand what is clean and not clean, even though it's not said here. So, so again, two different, two different, two different rules of thought. Let me go back to the first one. Every moving thing is permittable. Okay, fine. Either way, we do know that um, the food laws are clearly delineated for all of God's chosen people. And we're going to get to that when we get to Leviticus. So knowing what's to come down the road, we do know that he gives us instructions and we're realizing that his instructions are good. And we know that there are some other instructions that come with food. So that's what I meant by the Noahide laws. Some people say the Noahide laws are what is okay for now, but all the other laws don't matter. And then some people believe that the Noahide laws say that you can eat everything. Okay, well, all I'm saying is when I read this in order, there's something about clean animals being sacrificed. So we obviously see that there's a difference between clean and unclean, even though it's not designated right here. And what I do know is that there isn't a distinction between Genesis 9 and Leviticus 23 that all of a sudden says, here's my instructions and you don't have to follow them, right? We already know that. So knowing where we're going, that there are food instructions, I'm taking this as the beginning of some food instructions. All we know is, is that he's saying you now have um, animals and you are now permitted to, to kill them. He just gives instructions on how to do it. Only flesh with its life, that is its blood, you must not eat. Basically what it's saying is, is that if there's flesh that's alive, it has life. I mean, it, it says it right there. I have now, um, I have now given you everything. So here's another, you can obviously clearly hear in my teaching, which side I lean on, but I'm wanting to make sure that I give the full view. One side says at this point, all animals are good. Another side says that can't be the case. I lean on that can't be the case. So let me explain why I lean on that side. Every, I have now given you everything. Very next verse, only flesh with its life, that is its blood, you must not eat. So how can it be everything? He just gave some instructions on how it's not everything. So I'm not taking it literal. Every creepy crawly thing is for your good. He's just saying, here's the order of life. And then also here's how you're going to uh, take care of killing it so that you can eat it. Does that make sense? Um, so if it doesn't, you guys can obviously ask me, but that's kind of the, the side that I lean on is that I believe that when it says every living thing, that it's talking about um, every living clean thing because they already knew what was clean and not clean. So that's just my interpretation of it because of the sacrifice that happened prior. But again, there is a theological viewpoint that the Noahide laws say that everything is clean. Okay, so... Um, we also begin to see, um, every animal and from every person, will I avenge it from every person's brother? Will I avenge that person's life? The one who sheds human blood by a human, will his blood be shed for in God's image? He, he made humanity. All that's saying there is I made humans in, in my image and you cannot kill them. And if you do, I'll kill you. Like basically capital punishment comes into play because that is how highly he sees humankind. Um, so not only in this moment, he says you can kill animals, but he says you cannot kill humans and because you were made in my image. So 
again, I'm only saying all of this might be obvious, but I'm trying to point out that his instructions are good. They make sense. They're not weird. I'm going to trip you up instructions. They're foundational to society. Anybody, I would assume, would agree that it's not good to kill humans and that you can kill animals and that that is the beginning of uh, seeing that humankind has a higher structure status than the animal kingdom. Um, and so that's 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 all that means there. Um, let me end with that i think and i might have a couple of final things before we move into the next Torah portion so hold on okay one final little message three different times it is commanded to be fruitful and multiply and again we see this as a reenactment of what he was trying to do in the beginning in the garden of eden he creates earth he says be fruitful and multiply here we are again they're creating a society and he says be fruitful and multiply but as for you, be fruitful and multiply, flourish in the land and multiply it. Up until that point, why would he tell them to flourish unless he gave them instructions on how to flourish? It's a brand new thing. Like I said, if you go into a brand new house or a brand new country, you're not going to be able to just walk the way you want to walk. You're going to have to, you're going to have to submit and get some instructions on how to, you know, on how to live. And so he's saying, but for you, like, here's all these instructions. Don't kill, don't kill humans. <laughs> and, but for you, live righteously not but for you like in spite of you but like but for you focus on like these are just the instructions let's keep society at bay here for you can you be fruitful and multiply and then um i'm about to establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you including the flying creatures um i will confirm my covenant with you never again will all flesh be cut off the waters and I won't ruin the land. And then he basically places the rainbow. Um, but again, I, I mentioned this in the beginning, my rainbow do I place in the cloud and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the land. So not even a sign to you, but a sign to him and the land. Whenever I bring clouds over the land and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember, I will be loyal to my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Never again will the waters become a flood or destroy all flesh. When the rainbow is in the cloud, I will look at it to remember the perpetual covenant, perpetual covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the land. Then God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have confirmed between me and all flesh in the land. So I just wanted to end with be fruitful and multiply that the rainbow is for him to remain loyal to his side of being faithful that regardless of how bad things get the sun will rise and then um there was one other thing that i think i forgot to mention oh i'm kind of backtracking but i just wanted to say one thing when it says in in chapter nine in the beginning god blessed noah and his sons and he said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the land the fear and terror of you will be on every wild animal number one every flying creature of the sky number two with everything that crawls on the ground number three and with all fish of the sea number four he's basically establishing four categories of food which then when he goes in and says and everything is for you that's another for me distinction that in those four categories he's he's not saying that you can partake of everything but of those four categories those that are clean 
based on that previous scripture is what you can partake of. And, and the, the only reason why I bring that up is I just thought it was interesting that he, it, that he categorizes several times, actually, he does it again. Um, uh, every crawling thing. Oh, I thought he had done it again. Every crawling thing that is alive will be food for you as the green plants. Up until that point, he had dis he had distinguished four different types of animals. Um, again, that's not really an end point. That was just something that I had forgot to mention that the other thing he does is he starts to categorize things. Um, uh, yes, let me see. Appears to be a category of animals different from cat cattle. Oh, there's, sorry, you guys, this is kind of another thing. Um, the reason why I bring that up is because part of the thought is the creeping things or every crawling thing that is alive for food is outside of those four categories. And so that is a concept of the other theology that says that everything was for humans because that actual word is remis and it's um it's actually uh the definition would be a reptile so which is kind of interesting because when you think about a reptile it goes back to positon or the creepy thing that was in the garden and so there's anyways th these are just kind of like little nuggets for you to dive into because as i talk out loud i already am getting a revelation of what food to you means. Um, I have now given you everything. Yeah, I feel like I'm kind of getting wrecked in just that, just this concept. Anyways, I just wanted to bring that up that part of the, the thought process with every, all food is now permittable is because there was four categories of food. And then he adds this word ramus, which means reptile. Every crawling thing is a lot that, that is alive. And even and even not only categorizes reptile, but says that is alive, which is interesting because you also can't eat it when it's alive, right? So right after he says every creepy thing that is alive is food for you, but then says you can't eat it if it's alive. It can't have blood in it. So there's there's just some things in there that you're going to have to wrestle through. And like I said, one one uh, mode of thought is that it meant everything. I tend to fall on the other side because everything can't mean everything if it can't have life, but then it says to have life. So as I'm talking, just so you guys know, the revelation that's coming to my heart is that if every creepy thing represents possibly Hasatan, then he is basically saying, I've given that over to you. That's your hierarchy. There's your, st there's your stance in my, in my house. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to eat him. Like you're not going to eat Satan. Anyways, that's like literally right off the top of my head as I was reading that. So you're getting me in my rawness as I, as I sort through the scripture, you can kind of see how I do that. I, 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 I look at multiple ways of thinking about something. I don't, I don't make up my mind that this is the way it is and then find commentary to back me up. I find commentary to not back me up. And then I look at the other side of it and then I come to a place where he has to give me revelation on that wrestling. So hopefully that didn't add any confusion. Like I said, I wanted to end with, um, you know, his covenant, the rainbow in the sky is to remind him of his faithfulness to, to for us to remember and to be loyal for sure, but to literally remember. I mean, I think more on the human side, I don't think Yahweh forgets, 
But if anything, he says how quickly they forgot. Like he says that all the time, right? So it's like us humans probably use the rainbow to actually remember that he is faithful. And he uses the rainbow not because he forgot, but because he will remain faithful even when we're not. My heart is to direct you guys to wrestle some things out and give you some pieces for you to be able to hold on to and wanted to connect the dots that we've actually talked about the Noahide laws before. And it was when dad was talking about the Jerusalem council in Acts when we were breaking down the greatest lie. And so I just wanted to connect those dots that we've heard of these before, but we haven't actually read them. And my only point was to just explain that when you study this, you're going to see Noahide laws in quotes. And my only point is that I just want you guys to know that those laws written out, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, weren't created as like a document or like a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven until 250 years after Yeshua was born. You know, um, not that that means that that's wrong. I'm, I'm just saying for me, I'm wanting to read that chapter at face value with no, right? I come to the table that I don't know. So I'm coming to the table that I don't know anything about this, ab about these. And so I'm, I'm dissecting them for what it's worth without having that history. Um, and in the new, the first time I had that history was when we correlated it with Acts. Um, and so just wanted to give that information out that as you're wrestling through some of these initial laws, when you go to research what you'll find, but it's not like, uh, you know, Genesis, this chapter in Genesis is separated from the rest of the Torah. Cause you have to remember the Torah was not given until, um, Mount Sinai. Now that doesn't happen until Exodus. We're just in Genesis. But my point was that we're starting to begin to see some things come forward that almost clues us in that the Torah was known before the foundations of the earth. Because Abraham, we haven't even gotten there yet, follows his instructions. It says that he's a man that follows his commandments. How can he be a man that follows his commandments when there's no commandments that have been written yet? Well, that's the mystery. They were only written in exodus but that doesn't mean they weren't known it's not like huh it's like you know yahweh i have an idea why don't i do this he had been instructing them since the moment they had gotten on earth and that's why we need to wrap our heads around this because the moment people start talking about the laws it's like oh yeah the 613 laws it's impossible and it's like okay regardless of the 613 laws does he not instruct us I mean, if you want, we could count all the commandments in the Bible. I'm pretty sure there's going to be a whole lot more than 613 because Yeshua, I'm not saying he added to the Torah because he can't add to the Torah. He is the Torah. Like he can't, you can't add to the scripture. I don't want to say that, that Yeshua added, but he definitely brought meaning. And when something has meaning, you can equate maybe five principles to one law. So not that he added to the laws. But he definitely made things a little bit more, oh, that's what you mean to walk in that standard? You can't just murder someone? You can't, you can't 
hate them in your thoughts because that would be murder. Oh, that's what that means. Yeshua brought meaning. He didn't add to the law, but he definitely brought some meaning and brought a higher standard or brought an example of the standard we should have had that Yahweh was wanting the whole time. <laughs> so again, the point of all of the, the concept of these laws is we're beginning to see the, the first workings of Yahweh releasing some instructions for society. And we actually begin to see how they're super connected to the food laws in Leviticus, which we'll get there when we get there. And he's so graceful. I don't even think we're getting to Leviticus until year three. <laughs> but for now, this is how good he is. Can we start there? Can, can, can we say that we shouldn't be eating meat that's alive, basically raw, right? We shouldn't be eating, it, it shouldn't have life in it. And so, you know, things like that. I mean, he just takes us, you know, precept upon precept. And so if I didn't make sense, that's kind of what I was just wanting to get at is that we're beginning to see some things that we're somewhat acquainted with, but not quite acquainted with. But I also don't want us to be too acquainted because I want us to have a clean slate. And we're starting to see the beginnings of, of some instructions. Because this is what's so powerful is when you when you work yourself backwards, which we haven't even got, we, we can't do that yet. We're going to spend three years just getting the foundation. Once you start working yourself backwards, you can actually start seeing that things happened in Abraham's life that, that are um, at the same time as the appointed feasts. Well, we haven't gotten to the appointed feasts yet. We haven't gotten that instruction. Up until this point, we have not heard about any appointed feasts other than Genesis that says you're supposed to govern them. But we don't know what we're governing yet. But once you know what you're governing, then with, the, with your eyes unveiled and you can see what it is that you're governing, then you can go back and be like, ah, Abraham knew what he was doing. Because why would he call you as sons and daughters to govern something that Abraham couldn't govern? <laughs> Abraham was obviously governing those things, but you don't hear about it because, you know, things happened in Exodus when it, when Moshe decides to write it down, right? He wrote it down, but it wasn't new. So, so anyways, so, and, and, the, and the same thing with, with the food laws. Okay. So, cause some people will die on the Hill. Well, it says there that all things are good for you to eat. So that's it. Well, you've got to tie that to Leviticus and you've got to tie that with some of the context around it. And so you've got to, you've got to wrestle through those things, you know, but definitely wanted to present that there's a couple different ways to look at that word. Um, and, and that's one of the things that I'll do is when something, when he, in the chapter, when he describes four different classes of animals and then says every creepy thing is food for you, I want to see if that same word creepy thing is the same thing as every creepy thing. And if it's not the same word, then he's getting at something else. But in English, it's the same word. So the first thing I do is I go to the Hebrew. Is this a different word? What is he getting at? Is this a different class of animals? Is he pointing at something different? And so that's what I meant by that word ramus. And so that gives you kind of a clue on how to dissect some of these scriptures. You know, like I said, it, it, to me, it's confusing. It, it says everything is food for you and don't eat it with the life in it. Okay. Well, obviously that doesn't mean everything is food for me because if everything was food for me, I could eat any animal, however I want, whenever I, I mean, that's a, right. So so right off the bat, there has to be, what does that word everything mean? And, and am I putting my American English term on everything means everything? Because one of the things I will point out 
is there are some scriptures that will say, you know, um, and this is in the renewed covenant, you know, when Paul talks about food, there are a couple of confusing scriptures where he says, you know, don't, don't let people judge you for, for what you eat and drink. And a lot of people take that, that that means you can eat whatever you want. I actually take it the complete opposite. I take it as, can you stop judging me for not eating pork? Cause you guys are really judgmental, not you guys, but literally even being on vacation with my family, every single time we went to a restaurant, I would say, well, I can't have pork. And they would be like, you can't have pork. Well, you know, Jesus died. So we can, I mean, that's the first thing that they, every single time it's like, anyways. And I, and, and then, so I read that scripture, don't let people judge you for your new moon observances and for what you eat. And people have taken that completely out of context and say that Paul's saying, don't let anyone judge you because you can do whatever you want. When in reality, he was actually speaking to people who were Hebrew. Hello. <laughs> which means the Hebrews weren't not doing it. They were doing it, which is why he was telling them, don't let people judge you for what you're doing because everybody around these Hebrews were pagans. You, we have to know who Paul was talking to. Paul was talking to, to a group of Hebrews who were obeying the Torah. And he was telling them, don't let pagans, not pagans, but don't let people who follow paganism judge you for what you're doing in this culture. And we've completely twisted his words up. And we have Christians being like, see, Paul said, don't judge me for all of the shit I do. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Anyways, I just, ah, the word just excites me because it's a complete twisting and you've got to do the work to untwist it. So anyways, when Paul says things like, like that, people take that as like a free pass of, see, I can eat whatever I want. Well, here's the thing. He was Torah observant. So when he said, eat whatever you want, he already had the foundation in him to know what was not clean. He would never tell somebody to eat something that's unclean because that was common knowledge. But as Christians, it's been completely wiped away from, I don't want to say as Christians because we're not, but Christianity has completely wiped away that foundation. So when you read the scripture, you have no context to what he's saying. Hopefully that makes sense. But like Paul, if he says, I'm not saying he said this, but if Paul said, you can eat whatever you want, he's, he's, that would be like an American saying, yeah, all the animals are food for you. And somebody in Thailand being like, yeah, like monkey brains. And an American being like, uh, excuse me, that's not what I meant. I didn't mean you could eat everything. Does that make sense? It's like, it's a cultural thing. If I say, yeah, Jalen, you can eat whatever you want. I'm clearly not talking about monkey brains. That's because I'm in America. Well, it's the same thing with Paul. When Paul says you can eat whatever you want, which he didn't say, but I'm just saying, if Paul was to say you can eat whatever you want, Paul knew you don't unclean food or un sorry, I'm saying that wrong. Unclean animals is not food. So it's not categorized. That's why I was pointing out the different categories of food. It's not categorized as food. So he wouldn't say all food is good for you. Or how do I say he could say all food is good for you because in his mindset, something that's unclean is not food. It's not even food. So, so to a Hebrew pig is not food. So that's why it's okay if a Hebrew says, yeah, anything on the table you can eat because there would be no pork on the table. <laughs> I hope I'm making sense, but you gotta, you gotta wrestle through those things. And, and what do those things mean when those things are said and really get at the context of that? Again, not that our um, scripture Torah portion had anything to do with, with pork per se. I just, we can see those inner workings and it's kind of, 
it's the first time that we've kind of hit some of these instructions. And so I just want to make sure that we have the tools to be equipped to look at these things as we move forward, because that's where I don't want to say the nitty gritty comes out, but that's where the wrestling comes in. I mean, you guys all know we've sat in services where people have piped up and said, you mean to tell me that we're going to do this? Yes, we are. Because we're going to do the work to figure out what's actually being said and what, and what that means. And, um, and, and why it's, and why it says that and who it's for and, and all that stuff. We're going to, we're going to figure all that out. So because we're coming to the table that we don't know. So how can we say, that we already know enough that we're not supposed to do X, Y, and Z, but we are supposed to do F, J, K, right? Like, I don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? We're coming to the table. We don't know, but we do know that we want his instructions. And so we're going to wrestle through these things together. Thank you for listening to this message from Kingdom Heirs International. If you have received insight and revelation with this message, we invite you to claim that revelation by trading on the trading floor with this ministry. You can do that at kingdomairsflag.org. Thank you.